Maybe don't know. Maybe don't. This time, 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 What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Chris Hampton. And this is Nate Drolet. And together we form David and Goliath. Any idea why? Oh, yeah. Uh, I actually get this one. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell reference. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't didn't go 80s hip-hop or 90s hip-hop, so I figured figured that'd be a good one. We've had enough troubles in the, the quarantine. We don't need any more. Oh man, you know, and I listened to Illmatic like four times this week to prepare for this. I thought I was in. <laughs> nice. Well, I'm I'm just giving you culture. That's really all it is. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh. How are uh, how are things in Houston? You know, pretty good. Uh, it's been hot, but eh, training's been going well. Staying motivated. Uh, that's been probably the biggest thing. Just yeah, you know, kind of moving just continuing to move forward so uh yeah can't complain making plans for potential uh potential trips coming up so that's always fun nice yeah you know it's interesting the whole motivation thing is this weird conversation because i think we all were like really ramped up our motivation because we thought it was going to be like a three-week ordeal yeah and it's really easy for that motivation to fall off when it becomes a two or three month ordeal. Yeah. And you know, who even knows what this is going to mean here in the next 12 months even. Yeah. Yeah. Who, who has any idea what this might look like? I mean, everybody's trying to predict, but you know, we don't know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so things have been going good. I kind of leaned into it initially of just saying, Hey, like, I don't know what the future's going to hold. I'm going to take a little time off, relax, and then kind of just got psyched on training for the sake of training. And that's been good. Now I'm just excited for that, which I think is for me is a really good place to be. Uh, I'm yep. not stressed over, you know, am I going to be able to go on a trip soon? Will something fall through or whatever? It's just, you know, putting in the work. Yeah, yeah, I think it's kind of nice sometimes to not have that big thing looming out in front of you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of been my MO here as well. Like, I, you know, we had the option to get outside here pretty often because we're basically isolated already. Yeah. But, but I just chose not to and spent most of my time indoors and working on the book and all that and now it's opened up quite a bit and you know i'm feeling like okay i I don't feel so bad going outside so i've been getting out quite a bit and you know kind of building up the the pyramid a little bit similar to your post that you put up the other week yeah Uh, just been trying to get in some moderates and some second tier type stuff and you know feel good about climbing again I think that's really the the important part, not put a bunch of pressure on and just feel good about it. Yeah, for sure. And it's been cool seeing, because I know you've 
really dived into different styles with that pyramid too, which is, yep. uh, you know, I think really important. Yeah. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a mind fuck in itself because, you know, you go out and do something. I just did this little V10 the other day called the camera that is basically a one move, tiny, tiny crimp boulder, mm-hmm. which is, which is not my style by any means. And and when I did it, you know, it's that, that typical thing where it felt easy. It's like, oh, I could do that move 15 more times. You know, that that's not true. I could blow off the crimp any of those attempts. But that's how it felt. And I'm like, I don't know. Maybe this is only V8 or something. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I chatted with some other people. And, you know, it seems that that might be the grade, the V10. So I don't know. And But it's kind of cool to have taken that that thing that felt like there's no way I'll ever be able to do this type of move and move it up into that sort of second tier, um, close to my top tier, frankly, level. So kind of fun. Yeah, it's exciting. It's cool when, you know, because every different style in some way has their own pyramids. You know, for me, it's I've definitely had a crimp pyramid versus compression versus all these different things. And that's a way I like to look at them because otherwise, you know, there's no reason to ever do things like slab or just anything I'm bad at. Like there was a time where doing crimps, it's like, oh, this will never hit the big pyramid. But uh, when I started looking at them as, oh, I've got my crimp pyramid, I've got my slopers, all these different things. It's pretty cool when they start to overlap or even when a weakness pyramid starts to, you know, those start to become your top tier boulders. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's super fun, super interesting. And it, it just, you know, even though you're still climbing and that's still the focus, it feels like it allows you to grow in different directions. And I mean, I really think that's what keeps our attention about climbing is that there's so many different ways that you can keep improving. Yeah. And it's, you know, that's something that's so exciting about I feel like the longer I climb, the more avenues I see for improvement. Yep. And it, you know, there was a time where I was like, oh, I've got maybe these two, three weaknesses or two, three things I could work on. And now I'm like, oh man, I've got such a lifetime worth of things I could improve on in any direction. And it's cool. It's really exciting. Yeah. It feels like a video game where you're like, oh, let me go back to level three and go through that door. I didn't go through then and yeah. see what's, see what's there. You know, so much fun. Yep. So before we get started on our chat today, I do, I do have an ask for everybody. Um, it's the date is 514. The book went live on Amazon this morning and anyone who's bought it and wants to take the time to do so, I would love it. If you would go to Amazon, find the book, you can get a link directly to it on Amazon right here in the show notes and leave a review for it. That's super helpful to get it in front of new eyeballs, people who don't know about power company climbing. Um, I appreciate massively that you've bought it from us instead of waiting for it to go on Amazon because, you know, not trying to throw shade at Jeff Bezos, but I'm throwing shade at Jeff Bezos I don't have a clue how authors who only publish on Amazon can make any money. It's crazy the tiny amount of royalties the author gets 
on a book that's sold through Amazon. We make like 30 or 40 times more selling it through our site than we get from Amazon. So, But the reviews are super helpful to get it in front of new people. So if you have the time to do that, please do, and we appreciate it. Yeah, and while okay. you're at it, make, it make, sure, make sure it's a uh, five-star review, you know. Yeah, I mean, nothing less than that is acceptable, no. Yes. no be honest, actually. I, I don't mind that a bit. Um, all right, what are we talking about today? Oh, man, we're talking about Malcolm Gladwell's revisionist history, his episode called The Big Man Can't Shoot, which was on talking about Wilt Chamberlain and on a more and- global scale... Uh, his reluctance to shoot free throws underhand. Yeah, yeah, and it kind of compares Wilt to Rick Barry, who's also a Hall of Famer, who did shoot his free throws underhand. Mm-hmm. And and it's an interesting comparison kind of based on this threshold model of collective behavior put forth, I think, by Mark Granovetter, a sociologist, um, basically saying that we all have a threshold at which we'll go along with something and you know in this case Wilt had a really high threshold in that he didn't want to do it because he thought he'd look silly and Barry had a low threshold because he just didn't care what everybody else thought yeah so what we're and this was an old episode you know I think this was from his first season right yeah season one yeah and and it's it's interesting the first time I listened to it I got something totally different out of it than I got this time when preparing for this episode. Um, oh, really? And and part of that, I think, is just my skeptical brain, you know? So I, I went down a little rabbit hole. But Okay. But let's just jump into it. You, you wanted to talk about this episode, so what is it about it that you wanted to chat about? You know, I remember really enjoying this episode when it first came out. Uh, I think yeah, I even same. sent... I think I sent it to you initially, or if nothing else, we talked about it when it first came out. Yep. And re- revisiting it recently uh, to prepare for this talk, I man, I forgot just how much I liked it. Um, it, I think it's something that's very relevant in sports in general, uh, but definitely climbing. And it's this idea of doing something, like the direct quote that I pulled from from it is doing something dumb knowing you are doing something dumb yeah so it's this idea of kind of allowing pride to get in the way of good decisions Mm -hmm. Um, and that's i mean that's so relevant in climbing and it's funny that you talked about you having a different take on it now versus then because i did as well Uh, i'd be interested to hear what what were your takeaways this time? Well, how about first we we kind of explain the episode a little more for people who haven't heard it. I do suggest you go back and listen to that episode if you haven't, because I do think there's a ton of valuable info and just thought fodder really in there. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but the basics of the episode are that Wilt Chamberlain, one of the best basketball players ever um, had the highest scoring game ever 100 points for one season he switched to this underhand sort of granny shot um, to make for free throws 
mm-hmm. and his free throw percentage went up by quite a bit. Um, uh, the number before was he was shooting 40% free throws before underhand. Yeah. So and then awful. I think 60-something percent after. That sounds right, yeah. Or during. And in the game that he scored 100 points, he was 28 for 32 yeah. from the free throw line, which is still tied for the most free throws in a game. Um, but then after that season, he went right back to his old methods. And that's contrasted against Rick Barry, who for his career shot 90% from the free throw line and always shot underhanded, this granny mm-hmm. shot. So the theory is, or the question is, why didn't Wilt and why don't other players shoot underhanded? Um, if it is obviously the better way to shoot, and, and in Wilt's case, it made a big difference in his free throws, why did he not stick with it? Um, you know, and I think, I think you're right. There is this big pride element, and Wilt does say, I just felt silly. I couldn't. I couldn't keep doing it because I felt silly. And Yeah. And and while I think, you know, that's a that can control us in some negative ways, I also think if you feel like you look silly, how's that affecting you psychologically? And then how does that affect other parts of your game eventually? Mm. You know, so that has to be considered as well. You know, if I always just feel like this outsider or this pariah or whatever, how's that going to affect the rest of my game? And we don't know because he went he went right back, you know. Yeah. So I think that has to be taken into account. You know, Rick Barry, obviously it didn't he's got this super low threshold for this behavior didn't affect him at all. He's like, "Fine, I'll be the pariah, I don't care." Yeah. You know, but I don't know if we can change that level of how much we care about what other people think. And then it, you know, it has to have this downstream effect of, you know, for over the rest of your game. Yeah. It's one of those, it seems like one of those things that you can't, it would be hard to make a small switch just in this part of your game without changing the way you view all of your game. And probably honestly, how you view a lot of things outside of sports, like how you view things in life in general. Yeah. Totally. I mean, I think it it has to affect everything else. If if you're the like laughing stock of the league or of the sport or whatever, even if you're you're doing well, you know, if people are laughing at you, it's going to affect you. Yeah. Sadly. No, I mean that's yeah, that's I mean, and that's exactly what we saw with Will. You know, he. I mean, he straight up. Set, like his coach said, if you shot free throws at 90%, we might never lose a game again. Right. <laughs> Knowing that, he still was like, mm, no, I don't want to look silly. Yeah. And, you know, I, I went through a bunch of NBA stats, and, man, I wish climbing had stats like the NBA. It's so easy to just go through and find any number you want to find. Mm-hmm. And I did look at... If Wilt had switched and his, so he shot, um, let me see, where's he at here? He shot, I don't have his free throw percentage here, but if he had 
shot 61%, which is what his best season was, that season he was shooting underhanded. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I've got it here. It's 51% was his career. So the season he shot underhanded was 10% better. If he had done that for his whole career and stayed at 61%, then that would have moved him from number seven on the all-time scoring list to number five, which would put him just above Michael Jordan. Damn. So it does have a big effect. Um, You know, that's 1,214 more points throughout his career that he would have scored. But I think there are also questions. Like, if we look at Rick Barry's career scoring... His he's seventh on the all-time free throw percentage list, so there's still six people shooting overhand free throws like we normally see mm-hmm. who were who had a higher percentage than Rick Barry. Um, and we, I don't think we can discount that. And he's 24th on the all-time scoring list, so he's 90 percent for free throws, only 45 percent from the field. So he doesn't even make the top 250 scorers in the NBA. And I have to question, looking at that stat, like did all the underhand practice screw up his shots from the field where you can't shoot underhand because then there's no way you're going to get a shot off with defenders. Interesting. so, So did practicing that way make him a bad shooter from the field? I don't know. See, you know, if we look at, that, go ahead. Oh, the first thing that jumps out to me when you read those stats is I think, oh man, this is a guy who did not have a good shot, but he managed to hack the system by shooting underhand. Like I right. hear, I hear someone who completely outperformed his ability as a shooter and managed to, you know, what you say he was the seventh most uh, seventh free throws, on free throws. Yep. Yeah, his percentage. But his regular field goals were not quite up to par comparably. So this is a guy who managed to really outperform as a free throw shooter. Um, so yeah, that right, and it could go both yeah. ways. You know, it kind of depends totally. on where, I guess, when and how he decided to focus on these things. Like, you know, did he? Notice that he was good at free throws like this and then put more work into it Mm -hmm. and neglect his regular shooting or, you know, what happened? It's, it's damn near impossible to say, but if you, and I, and I think this is a cautionary tale as well as a, you know, a, a tale of looking at our biases and how we follow collective behavior because like like we just pointed out, it could go both ways, you know? Mm-hmm. If we look at, like, Shaq, who, who is referenced in this episode because Shaq is also a historically horrible free-throw shooter, um, Shaq is sixth all-time on the scoring list. So the question is, had he put a bunch of, a bunch of effort into these underhanded shots and been able to become a better free throw shooter, does that take time away from his game that did get him to being the sixth on the all-time scoring list, where Rick Barry doesn't even make the top 250? You know? Yeah. 
it's a it's a tricky question. It's not as cut and dry as it seems when it's presented by somebody as convincing as Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, he's such a good speaker. Um, <laughs> he's he's very good at making me believe things, and then I have to go down a rabbit hole to disbelieve it because that's just my nature. Uh, totally, and I you know I think that's it's good to view things from different perspectives. Um, you know, I think what we're really missing in this argument is, I mean, more underhanded free show, free throw shooters. Like, right. have we, if we could take someone who did score a lot of points in the field, but had a terrible free throw and they were already established. And then they made that transition for years. And let's say the rest of their career, like what does right. that look like? Does, do their field goals change, you know? But, uh, yeah, I mean, as it stands, we have, what, two, maybe three people? Yeah, there's only a handful. And and none of them are as good at it as Rick Barry was. Um, and we don't have anybody who did what you just mentioned. So, I mean, that's exactly the argument. Like, we don't have the data to really make that big comparison. Um yeah. You know, I do think it's super interesting. Are there are there parts of climbing you've seen that that like sort of followed this threshold model of collective behavior where at first it was shunned, nobody wanted to do it, it looked silly and it's just become the standard now? Oh yeah. Um and this is what made me kind of view it differently. Uh, I've recently been rereading The Rock Climber's training manual and mm-hmm. So this book is six years old right now. And I immediately started, like I've been taking notes on it. And is that I started really this, all six years? Yeah, it's, uh, I'm pretty sure it's six. I feel like last year was, yeah, pretty sure it's six. Um, oh, I can crazy. double, I can double check that. But uh, it's hilarious reading it because there are several times where you know, they're writing, I've got a few of them written down. Like, uh, they talk about how it's really not cool to train and how no pros ever talk about training. Cause it's really, really lame to talk about training. Right. And now it's like, man, that's what like half of pros Instagram at this point is just stupid human training tricks. Yeah. And that's, you know, the norm now is to want to train. In fact, I feel like we've for a lot of people pushed a little too far. Um, totally. Like, and that's, you know, an argument for maybe later in this discussion, but, um, other things is, uh, they wrote down like, they're like, Oh, you know, a good way to stay healthy is training. That's right. You read that correctly. Training will make you healthier. And now it's like, well, yeah, duh. But this was only six years ago that that was groundbreaking. Yep. In rock climbing at least. Um, yeah, but yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I was trying to think of things along those same lines and I re- I have this really distinct memory of this time in the red when I was a pretty new climber, um, watching this French climber who was visiting crush everything in the red and he refused to use a stick clip. And at the time stick clips were brand new and still seen as this like really weird thing and nobody wanted to be seen using a stick clip. And now it's like, you know, you 
chastise the person next to you if they aren't using a stick clip. Yeah, it's like, yo, I'm not trying to hike you out. Yeah, and I think it just, you know, it's a really good example of how until a bunch of other people are catching on and, you know, the the crowd is going with it, that's what causes more people to catch on. Not the not the good idea behind it, not because it's a smart idea, but because more people are doing it. Yeah. You know, I actually I do have another one that's uh really timely with right now. So back in, I think it was probably 2007, 2008, in the U.S. Nationals bouldering competition, there is video of Daniel Woods and Paul Robinson both. When they're sitting in the chairs waiting to climb, they have these little, like maybe six by six, like battery-powered electric fans that they have sitting in front of them, and they're drying their hands with them. So this is almost 15, something close to 15 years ago. And I remember being like, oh, that's kind of a cool idea, cooling your hands. Like, because competitions get really hot when you put that many people in a gym. I was like, that's really smart. And this was when I was, a time when I was climbing around Jimmy Webb a bunch. And he had like met them at that time. Um, and I was, I was like, Jimmy, did you ever see that video where they were using fans between a comp, like between comp climbs? He was like, oh, yeah. I was like, why did, like, do people still do that? Like, He's like, no, I don't think so. I was like, well, why not? He was like, well, I mean, it looks kind of dorky. <laughs> but yeah. now, like, people are hiking out, like, 12 and 18 volt, 10 pound Makita, like, shop fans yeah. to the crag. Like, people are hiking those things up into, like, upper chaos. Like, they're willing to do big hour-long hikes with huge fans, multiple of them sometimes, to help cool themselves off. Yeah. I'm, I'm that, resisting that one for as long as I can. <laughs> let me just say right now, you're going to want to convert. Like I, I will never go back. I bring mine, like I use mine hangboarding back when the gyms were open. I took mine into the gym with me. Like, I don't care. Like I am fully, I've gone full Rick Barry on this. <laughs> Granny shots. Oh man. It's yeah. I've, I have no shame when it comes to using my fan now. Yeah. I think it's, You know, I also think that if I look at it from my perspective, I think something like that could go wrong for some people. And that's, you know, I think we have to take an individualized approach still Um, because, you know, this winter for me, and I've never had this problem before, but my hands were just crazy dry all the time, too dry. I was dry firing off of things and... I was having to like use rhino spit right before getting on a boulder and, you know, wetting my hands before getting onto a boulder and, or I was just going to dry fire off. So, you know, in that situation, the fan might've sent me the other direction of not being able to do things. And then you get this, this contradicting data because I'm just following the crowd and not paying attention to, is this actually going to be a helpful thing for me or not? Yeah. So, yeah, no. And I think, I mean, that's fair. I think you, you gotta be, uh, aware of what's going on, you know, try and keep track of those things. Uh, You know, I mean, a lot of people deal with dry skin and don't even realize it. Like they don't totally, I've, I've met plenty of people who they'll be like, Oh man, like, I'm just greasing off these holds and I'll look at their hands and I'm like, 
dude, you just climbed. You haven't chalked up in three goes and your hands are still just bone white. Like you're not greasing. You're not sweating. You just don't like you're not sweating. And that's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I might have gone down that path had it not been for the fact that I'm in my gym and I'm doing these boulders that I know I can do and I know how they feel. And all of a sudden I just can't hold the grips anymore. You know? Yeah. I might've gone the path of trying to dry my hands even more if it weren't for that. Yeah. You might've also gone the path of, uh, you know, buying two big knee pads, roll of duct tape, gone to maple, you know, just (laughs) gone, gone out to pasture the way old people do. Yeah. When, you know, I think knee pads is a, is another good example. Absolutely. You know, it, it wasn't that long ago that they were really looked down upon everywhere. Yeah. Like, yeah. And now, now everybody's got a sin pad. And if you don't, why? You know? but for real. Yeah. Get, get a knee pad. Well, I mean, it, that used to be a thing, man. Like people would argue, like there was kind of two fronts, but they were secretly sort of the same. Like one was like, Oh, do you, you don't use knee pads. You, you know, you climb it in sweatpants or, you know, if it's a right. real sharp one, you tie a flannel sweatshirt around your knee and you know, you'd knee bar mm-hmm. on that or something like that. And then also people would secretly, when someone from Rifle would come along, they'd be like, okay, so Rock and Riesel, uh, you, you said I get a, Mc, a McDavid <laughs> sleeve and I mail it to them. Like, do I mail them cash? Like for my firstborn yep. child, what do they need? I need this. Yep. Totally. And I mean, there was even an argument on the, on B3 bouldering eons ago about, does it count if you touched your knee to the boulder? Amazing. Like. Even on a top out, if you put your knee on the boulder, you didn't do the boulder. Dude, I'm all about the alpine knee. Like, no shame. Oh, yeah. If you got to, I mean, get as much body friction on there as possible. If you got to roll over the top, roll over the top. Yeah. Nah. You know? But, yeah, that's, you know, all these little things. Like, there's so much. And I think this is the thing that caught me now is climbing is still so new we're still seeing more people come into it at such an incredible rate that we're learning a lot of cool things from other people, from other sports and just people who haven't been so entrenched. You know, when you've been in this for, I've been climbing like 16 years, you've been climbing 25. Yeah. Something like that. Like there are people now who weren't around when Dave McLeod pretty much wrote a blog post every day saying, stop crimping. Like he, I mean, that was his (laughs) bread and butter for, damn near a decade and it was i mean that saved a lot of us like a lot of us were just crimping too much and he was here to say hey quit crimping indoors so now Mm -hmm. i come across people i've had someone who they were only climbing maybe they've been climbing maybe three years now but they're like oh is that advice don't crimp inside and i'm like you you missed a full decade of it like that's but yeah like people keep coming into the sport with fresh eyes and all of the silly baggage that we used to have. And I mean, plenty of it is still there. Like, you know, they haven't quite picked it up and it's awesome. Yeah. Is it, did David Epstein write range? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's a, this is a topic along those lines and that there are people coming from other places and going, why aren't you doing this? Like what's, what's the rule against this? This is really weird. And yeah, and I'm glad that's happening. You know, I, I try to embrace as much of it as possible. And I try not to give a shit what the, the rest of the world thinks. You know, I, I just put out this little 
sort of like a hidden tactics and psychological advice video of doing the camera where I'm like, I hang my puffy on the boulder to shade a crimp and I'm covering the holds with my sweatshirt in between goes and, you know, it's, and I'm wearing sunglasses, which BJ Tilden pointed out doesn't count. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, and I think that's just a like, I don't really care what people think. I'm going to do these things because I, I want to do this thing. You know, so I think ultimately that's, it's this weird psychological battle between are you okay with this tactic or are you not? Yeah. It's, and the thing that's so hard about it is we don't realize these things are happening. Like if we, if we just knew if it was as simple as, oh, you're doing this, why are you doing that? Like it, we wouldn't have any of these issues but there are just so many norms that we have bought into that we think we're doing the right things. Yeah. Are there, are there climbing movements, things you've done on a boulder or on a route that felt embarrassing to you? Ooh. Um, there's, there's one that's been embarrassing for me a lot of times, and I, I, it's strange. I don't know why it feels embarrassing, but it's felt embarrassing to the point of I've looked for other solutions, even though this one worked perfectly fine, just so that I could do the other solution. And that's the, like, inside heel hook. Oh, it yeah. Always, it always feels really inelegant, but sometimes it's just the thing that works, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, one that I would say I do, I won't say struggle with, but excessive knee barring. Um, it, mm-hmm. you know, honestly, if my entire goal was to, to just get up rock climbs, man, I would embrace it a lot more. And I consider myself pretty decent at knee barring. It's something I've like put a lot of time into mm-hmm. and I'm not going to like skip obvious knee bars or rests like if they're there. But, you know, there, to me, there's a line that I've drawn and I can guarantee I would have climbed harder boulders faster had I just duct taped on two knee pads and gone crawling. But, you know, there are times where it's like, that's just not what I want. Like I want, like I am trying this boulder because it is a challenge to me for the raw power and execution that is required. And I don't want a knee bar through it. Like I like this challenge, Um, you know, and that could like there's definitely a sense of problem. There's I'm sure there's pride to it. There like if I just didn't care and was like I'm going to send every rock climb, like full Adamandra mode, um, you know that wouldn't bother me. But I don't know. That's definitely one I hang on to. And I, you know, maybe I'm just being stubborn, but it's not one I really want to change. Yeah, I'm I'm sort of the same way, you know. And I'll actually walk away from a boulder because I think it's too, it's become too much of a knee bar boulder, you know? And, you know, part of that's that I, it's not that I'm embarrassed doing the knee bar boulders. If it was, if it was established as a knee bar boulder, you know, rather than being this thing that like was established without knee bars and then people learned how to dumb it down with knee bars, but they're still taking the old grade. And, you know, for me, that seems like it's, it's altered the challenge entirely, you know? Mm-hmm. 
And I would rather walk away from that. Uh, and I have multiple times. Um, yeah. You know, boulders that I'm positive I could do, they get this high grade, but I know that if I do it with the knee bars, it's not that grade. And, you know, if I had unlimited time, it would be fun to do it with the knee bars and do it without the knee bars. And, you know, but when I'm on a trip and I have a finite amount of time, I steer clear of those things for whatever reason, rather than just challenging myself. And maybe that's a mistake. No, you know, I think there's, you have to make the choice of where do you want to invest your time? Um, and you know, like I've climbed a lot in rifle and I'll say when I go to rifle, I put two D pads on and I just go crawling up every single climb. Sure. Cause that is, I mean, that's why you go there. Like, yeah. When you in Rome. Yeah. You don't go there to use your hands or really to get like <laughs> stronger or fitter. Like you go there to go crawling. Um, yeah. but it's a skill like, the climbing there is really neat and really like just super, super fun. Um, and I mean like, yeah, actually like there are some cool power routes and all that, but, uh, but to me, that's it. That's the difference is when I'm like, if I'm in rifle or if I'm on a knee bar boulder, like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. But, uh, I don't know. It's just, there's times where I'm not trying to, I guess I would just rather spend my time on something that to me, like, cool. That's the challenge I'm looking for kind of thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, things like knee barring in the gym and heel hooking on woodies fall in that same category. Like they're, they're both totally valid things to do. Um, and you can learn a lot from them, but Mm -hmm. some people feel like that shouldn't be, that shouldn't count. You know, you, you don't heel hook on a woody and you don't knee bar in the gym. Yeah. You know, and I I think it just comes down to an individual. You decide how you want to challenge yourself. Yeah, you know, and that's I think that's totally valid. Uh, what about what about something like doing eliminates outdoors in front of people? Oh, I think it's awesome. Okay, personally, I love it. But that's one thing that um I think that's something that a lot of people just don't recognize as kind of an option. Like yeah. There's, I mean, it's the same thing. Uh, like there are a lot of things that we just don't really consider. Like you don't have, if you're in the gym and you're training or you're just climbing, you don't have to go to the top of boulders. Like you can just climb a half of a boulder or like if you mess up a move down low, you don't have to go all the way to the finish hold, send the climb, come back down and then fix what you did wrong. Like if you're just doing like a circuit and you mess up a move, like you can just drop rest fix the move and then repeat the entire thing. Like if anything, that's what you should do. You shouldn't keep climbing, iron that move in like into your muscle memory. You should just stop and fix it right then. Mm-hmm. But that's weird. Like, cause there's kind of this built in idea for all of us that, Oh, I need to get to the top every time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like outdoor link ups, sport climbing is also one Ooh. of these things that like, it hasn't been fully accepted in some places yet, you know, like, oh, yeah, like the, the route absolute zero at the red. Uh, yeah. I thought it was a fantastic climb. Amazing. Link and, up. It, and it was a link up, you know, with an added bolt and, and the bolt got chopped because the, you know, the old guard can't accept this new thing. And in reality, it's just, you know, it's a really efficient, environmentally friendly way to have new rock climbs, you know? Yeah. 
So. Yeah, man, I completely forgot about linkups. Talk about sort of a blast from the past. That's something that, man, people used to get all sorts of aggro about. Yeah, it's interesting what, like, which of these things get accepted in some places and not in others. Like, on the rodeo wave, it's all a linkup. Uh, yes. You know? It's glorious. It just is. But then if you knee bar in Wild Iris, you know, the police are going to come after you immediately. You know, BJ Tilden will appear out of the woods and, yeah. and harass with his bow and arrow. You, yeah, for knee barring. <laughs> um, until, until he finds a climb that needs knee bars. You know, his, his new project in Sinks has two, he wears two knee pads for it. Ooh. But he would never wear a knee pad at Wild Iris, you know. <clears throat> so I, I just think it's interesting that some of these things never catch on and others do and it it really depends on the area so yeah um what are some things that you see happening now so we've talked about things that have kind of changed throughout the last you know decade Mm -hmm. or few what are things that you see now that you think are currently the underhand free throws that people aren't picking up on Hmm. the underhand free throws of climbing um, do you have some? Let me think on this if you have some. I do. Um, I've got a couple. So one I kind of hinted at earlier. The fan. Think, oh, not uh, not the fan. I, I feel like that's one. That one's being accepted more and yep. more now. Totally. Um, it is. I think we've moved. Like the training community has really moved away from climbing to get better at climbing. Mm-hmm. And we're now at this point, I meet so many people who are stuck in what I call the second plateau. Um, it's what Steve Bechtel often says, like people get to this one point and then a lot of them will just stay there and they spend the rest of their climbing career getting in and out of shape to be in that point. Um, and yeah. for a lot of people, this is like the second or potential final plateau. And I see so many people who are in this and when I talk with them, everything they want to do they're trying to like train their way out of using everything but climbing yeah you know if if they're like oh like i need to be stronger on crimps i'm like cool so how are you working on that and they'll talk about some hangboarding or things like that i'm like cool like what are all the crimpy boulders you're trying and you know it's like silence or if they want to be more powerful we'll talk about weighted pull-ups or things like that but it's like, okay, well, are you going out? Are you climbing on powerful climbs outdoors? Like if that, if your goal is to be powerful on climbs outdoors, like, are you doing that? You know, and it's, it's kind of funny to say that to get better at climbing, you need to be climbing, but like we're in this time to where I feel like that is becoming what people have stopped looking for in their progress. Mm-hmm. Like, and do you think that's a, you think that's the underhand free throw or like, is yeah. it a smart decision to, to not be thinking about climbing in that situation? No, I think, I think the underhand free throw is looking at your climbing to improve at climbing. Gotcha. And yep. that's like, you know, 10 years ago, this would have been the most ridiculous statement ever. And hopefully 10 years from now, it'll be ridiculous again. But man, that's like, that's a lot of what I'm seeing right now, especially with these people who are, you know, kind of stuck. 
Yeah, you know, I wrote in a rap song years ago that the best training for climbing is climbing. <laughs> Before I was a trainer, I was a prophet, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was definitely a period where I thought, I don't know, maybe that's not correct, you know, but but the deeper I get into it, it it is. It still holds true, and you're right, people have gone the other direction and are trying to hangboard their way out of out of a hole all the time yeah deadlift their way out of it yeah you know it's a whenever i started climbing i was for like i was fortunate in that after climbing for a few years i moved out to chattanooga and my goal was to climb harder on rocks so what i did was i like i was a big believer in data i looked at 8a like i pretty much had everyone else's like anyone I looked up to like I could have told you everything about their 8a like what their pyramids looked like down to like what their comments were like I had everything like to me that was priceless information because I wanted to get better out outdoors and this is what they did like if someone jumped from v8 to v11 I was like cool what were they climbing on the two years prior to this like what was their pyramid what what do I see that is lining up with this and man you could see so much like Honestly, the thing that so many people had in common is they punched the fucking clock. Like, you know, I, w- I would look at people who and be like, man, you went from 12A to 14A in five years. What did you do in that time? Oh, you did over 200 512s and you did 75 513s. Like, you never stopped climbing. Like, sure, I'm sure you, like, tried hard, you trained and did all these other things. But, like, man, they just really r- put in the work. Yep. And that's, uh, you know, right now, that's not what a lot of people want to hear. They want to, you know, they well, want to say, you know, we've got, we've got other data to look at now. It's, and I think that maybe has skewed things in that direction. Like, oh, now I can get online and find out how much Magos can one arm hang with. It's so much. It's amazing. So that's what I need to do. Yeah, you I know, mean, and to I'm get, to get yeah. to the Megos level. It has nothing to do with the fact that he lived in the Frankenura and had hundreds of five fourteens to choose from. You know. Yeah, I mean, he it's what was it all in about that, that one arm hang weight? Yeah, in that video, rot punked. He was like, "Oh, I, you know, I fill out these journals with everything I've done eight a and harder." And he showed a stack of what like five or seven journals. He's like, "That's yeah. probably two thousand routes, maybe, maybe more." Yeah. Um, like he has a. F- Five, I think it's an 8B plus, so 14A, that him and his coach would go out to his crag and do circuits. His coach had like a 13C, but I think he had done this thing over a hundred times. Like this was yeah. just a trainer route. Like the dude has punched the clock. Like, yeah. And yeah, yeah that's it's, a, in- it's interesting. This, you know, you had that data to look at back then. So that's what you looked at. And now there's this new emerging data that we're collecting on people and and people tend to look at that and ignore the massive pyramid of things that that person has done you know paul robinson just did his thousandth double digit boulder 8a uh, and harder 11 the 11 and harder yeah yeah um which is insanity you know so if you if you want to know why paul robinson is as good as he is Maybe the answer isn't in how much he can hang off of a one pad edge with one arm. You know, maybe it's in the fact that he's 
put the time in to do a thousand V11 and harder boulders. Yeah. It, you know, I think both are incredibly valid and, you know, I look at, uh, I'm definitely guilty of, I look at a lot of these strength numbers and because I've never been a particularly strong climber, it's easy for me to not see great value in them, but there's plenty of things that I've learned where I'm like, Oh, okay. Like if every V8 climber I see can do this, but I can't, you know, that's low hanging fruit. Let me get after right. it. Yep. But it's, and I've definitely dived down that rabbit hole a little too far um, of looking at strength metrics. And now to me, I'm returning more, more than ever to, okay, I want to climb hard outdoors. That means like climbing hard outdoors needs to be my measuring tool. Yep, for sure. I I did think of one while we were talking and, and I have to give a little bit of credit to, to Peter Bonamici for this one, actually. Um, and this is something I've been saying from, from the very beginning of this argument, but something I think is a, a big underhanded free throw, a big granny shot in the climbing world is climbing on volumes indoors. Oh, yeah. So many of the old guard are like, they don't feel like there's anything to gain from that and that it's moved too far away from climbing and it's just stupid. And, you know, uh, Peter sent me this text, I think last spring, maybe it was last fall, sometime last year with uh, this, this drawing that he had drawn over on his phone over this boulder that he had just climbed out at the rock shop. Uh, this uh-huh. V6, V6 called Burley. And he had drawn these volumes on it on his phone. And he's like, this is a volume climb. It's just, <laughs> it's just outside. And this is a drawing of how it's not a stupid volume climb, you know? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, there's, there's a ton of that outside. You know, yeah. if you, if you look at the big, weird, you know, giant footprint holds and the volumes, they're not unlike a lot of the grips were grabbing outside. They just have a much larger footprint. And honestly, the holds we're grabbing outside have an entire boulder as their footprint. You know, they're, they're huge, massive holds that we're using one tiny little part of. And, and that's exactly what a lot of that climbing indoors is. And, and the movement really isn't all that different in most cases, you know, so I think finding value in those indoor volume climbs is is a big granny shot right now. People just aren't recognizing the value of it. I totally agree. Um, you know, it's funny, speaking of kind of past and present, um, in the past people would always complain that the gym can only prepare you so well for climbing outdoors because it's so two-dimensional, all these different right, things. Right. And now that we have these three-dimensional volumes yeah people are like "Mm, that's not like outdoors it's like yeah i think it is is, outdoors is more like a 45 degree wall with no changes in angle and only one size crimp leading up it yes uh 40 degrees chris we're done with 45s you're right you're right sorry the the 45 that's uh very a very 2007 of you (laughs) we're all on the 40 degree tip now yeah that's true Yeah, yeah um, totally. It, you know, I, I definitely heard that argument a lot back in the day. And, 
And now that it's flipped the other direction, people are arguing in the other direction. It's, I don't know, strange. I think we just like to complain about the things we're bad at and that we, yeah, that we're, we're not good at. I think it might be a common theme here. Yeah, I, I think that's correct. Uh, I would say, so one other granny shot that I see now is uh, rest. Like, man, I don't see enough people really prioritizing things like sleeping, eating well. Um, we're, there's such a mentality of more, 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 more is like, more is better. More is more all these different things. And man, you know, even Bill Ramsey takes rest days. (laughs) Like it's, I've met so many people that will be like, Oh, you know, I really like the Bill Ramsey way of training. I do that like five, six days a week. I'm like, you know, Bill, Bill doesn't do that. He, like when he does those huge, have you ever listened to an interview? Like he talks about, oh yeah, I'll do these huge days, but it's because I'm about to go to a conference where I'm going to take four days off or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's really hard for a lot of people to rest enough and not do more. Like I can't tell you how many people I've worked with or I've consulted with where they're like, hey man, I feel like I'm just checking all of the boxes. You know, can you see what I'm doing wrong and you know I'll look over what they're doing we'll talk we'll climb together and in the end a lot of times I'm like man you're not failing to get better for a lack of work like you just like you're either not sleeping enough or you're training six days a week like you've been over trained or under recovered for five straight years like you're not plateaued you're just tired yep yeah and I'll take that you know I'll just add on to your definition so to speak um, beyond just the fact that people aren't getting enough rest, you know, there, I see a lot of people who are like, I'm checking the sleep box. Like I get eight hours of sleep, so I get plenty, but mm-hmm. then I, but then I do seven hour workouts, you know? Yeah. So just checking the sleep box isn't enough. You have to look at whether you're actually getting recovered or not. And if you're not, the answer might not be more recovery time. It might be less workout time, you know? And, and I think people have a hard time understanding that just going and doing more isn't better. Yeah. No. And that's, you know, there's so, like one example that I like for this is, uh, like aerobic work. It's great. Like even for strength athletes, a little bit of aerobic training <coughs> is awesome. Like it can mm-hmm. go a long way to build up your, uh, work capacity, so many be- beneficial things. Like you recover faster between workouts, like during a workout, you'll recover faster between sets. If you can build up your aerobic capacity a little bit. Awesome. Even just like general aerobic work, like a 45 minute mobility circuit or something like that, where you keep your heart rate up. Mm-hmm. But the problem that we run into is there are so many people who we have to tell them to stop running because to them, they're like, oh, this is like, this is where I'm going to make the differences. I'm going to go on a hard run. Like they start running and they feel like they need to work hard. Yep. Like they can't, they struggle to go out and jog like at more or less just a slightly faster than walking pace, like at a pace where they could have a conversation and only breathing in and out of their nose. Like that's really hard for them. Yeah. Um, and so that's why things like aerobic training is kind of talked about a lot less or even discouraged 
it's not because it isn't helpful. It's because coaches don't trust people to do it well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I tend to, I, I tend toward the side of vilifying those sorts of things. And, and it's a little unfair. Um, and maybe painting with that broad sort of brush isn't the right way to go. Um, but I find that it's helpful more often than not if I vilify it and keep people from doing it because if I let them do it, they just go too deep, you know, Yeah. over and over and over. That's what I see happen. Um, in my case, I have trouble not just stopping running and just taking it to a walk. <laughs> if, if I go run and I'm three minutes in, I'm like, yeah, I can just walk. It'll be fine. Yeah. You know, but, but yeah, I, I, I agree. It, that's a, that's a big one, I think. Yeah. Like it's, you know, we have a culture to where more work is better. Like, oh, like, let me just have a third cup of coffee and I can do more work, whether that's for your actual job or if that's for, you know, climbing or whatever. Like it's this idea of like, we need to keep pushing even when we feel like we can't. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately I think the moral of the story and, and for people who have listened to the, this episode, the big man can't shoot from revisionist history, go back and listen to it and listen to it with a a critical ear, Um, you know, both for, why there are certain things in your climbing or in your pursuits, whatever they are, that you ignore. Um, what are the reasons you ignore it? And, you know, try to see it from the other angle. Like, well, if I ignore this, is that beneficial to me in some way? You know, could Rick Barry have become a better shooter had he put more time into the overhand shot? Maybe. Who knows? You know, mm-hmm. it's hard to say, and you have to determine those things for yourself. Um, but look at them critically. Just because everybody else is doing it doesn't mean that's the way. Yeah. You know, and kind of to piggyback on that, one of my favorite groups of people to talk to when it comes to ideas for training are brand new climbers who came from another discipline. Because mm-hmm. there are people mm-hmm. who, if they haven't been climbing long enough yet to really know what the norms, like the social norms are, or just what the standard procedures are, these are people who are like, wait, why don't you eat food? If you're like, if you're having a five hour session, why do you not eat like a banana halfway through? Like right. that seems strange, but there's not a single person in this gym who eats any food like carbs or anything while they're training. It's like, oh, yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah, uh, ooh, I'm writing that down. Okay, um, mm-hmm. like, but these are the people who, you know, they haven't had the chance to really, um, kind of be told what to thought, and that's pretty cool. Do you think social media contributes to this, like, this herd mentality, collective behavior, sort of model? Yeah. I think so. And I think it's, I think oversimplifying and the social media kind of go hand in hand. Um, You know, just 
just yesterday, I think, or two days ago, there were, uh, I think Steve posted something on the Climb Strong Instagram about, um, you know, not having these long sessions, um, you know, that your sessions should be shorter. I, I don't remember if it was Steve, but it was, it was good advice, but it's also bad advice depending on which angle you're looking at it from. And a bunch of people reposted it and, you know, this, this. But if you're somebody who's always done short sessions and then you go outdoors and you try to perform on these little weekend road trips where you're trying to pack in nine hours of bouldering a day and you've only been training for 45 minutes at a time, then it's highly likely you're not going to get much done in those nine hours. You yeah, know, because you're not prepared for it. Um, so yeah, we that, have to we have to look at things from every example, eat or from every side, even if everybody's reposting it and saying this, this, this. So you feel like, oh, I should be doing that too. But you know, ask why. Yeah, and honestly, one of the biggest things you need to consider is everyone lives in their own bubble, like where the gym you train at the state you climb in, like all of these different things, your age, your background, all of these things makes you in some ways like unique, if nothing else from your vantage point. And so you need to figure, one of the best things you can do is try and figure out what are my biases? What is like, okay, so Steve said, you know, don't climb, don't do these big three to four hour sessions because bouldering is all about, you know, short, explosive, powerful movements. And, you know, how are you going to get that from a three to four hour session? But if what you want to do is go out and climb a bunch of boulders at like V8 range or, or not V8, like 80% range, or let's say you're not like a, let's say you're not a very experienced climber and things take you a long time to figure out. Right. Like, that's cool if you're powerful for like two goes. But if it takes you 40 to figure out the beta and the subtleties, man, it's going to take you a lot of weekends. Yep. So you exactly like what you said, you need to figure out what is my perspective? What is relevant to me? Still listen to these other things and, you know, take them into consideration. But yeah, I think it's important that we don't just look at what are these little clips, you know, these one minute training bites that we get from Instagram or all these different things. And just kind of absorb and assume that that's either relevant to us or that it's even relevant to the person who said it. Yeah, especially the things that tend to be so simplistic that they're easy to share and easy to get behind. You know, if if you don't have to spend time reading, if you don't have to think about it, if it doesn't make you a little uncomfortable to, you know, to try and consider all the aspects being put forth then it's probably too simple um i love simple you know i love short simple to the point and and i definitely go that route sometimes but short is usually missing some things in most cases you know you know it works on a lot of assumptions yep yep totally uh, yeah, and you know, you you said something a minute ago that was that I've been noticing a lot lately. I get a lot of emails um, or you know Instagram messages or whatever from 
relatively new coaches who are like, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? What do you think about this? And, and I'm starting to see this pattern of like, as when we start coaching, we're, we're coming at it from our own bias, you know, strongly from our own bias. And then the more experience you get and the, the more you've, the more time you've been doing it, you start to realize that there are a lot of other situations out there and that your bias may not be, you know, the, the prevalent one. So you have to get better at looking at things from all angles and trying to see all of the different parts of this person's situation. And, and I can almost tell how experienced a coach is when they message me by how many of those angles they've taken when they're looking at something. Because so many people come at it from one angle. And I'm like, yeah, but what about this and this and this? And what if that person has this going on? You know, did you ask these questions? And yeah, and I think that's just a, a big part of all of this is learning the questions to ask, learning how to see it from different angles. And, you know, while I applaud Malcolm Gladwell and I love reading his books and looking at, you know, listening to his podcast, he does tend to take things from one angle and, and make that story really stick. You know, at mm-hmm. the end of this episode, he's talking about driving in the car with Rick Barry and Rick Barry being this perfectionist. And, you know, he does everything a really specific, certain way. And that's what makes him so good. But he really wasn't very good at shooting from the field. So he didn't apply that perfectionist tendency to that. Mm-hmm. You know, so you have to look at it from every as- aspect, every angle. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, no, I think that's really important. One of the, to me, one of the biggest uh, times I learned this was when we tried to discuss when, uh, so we have our data that we collect and um, the assessments oh, that we do. And this is a really, this is actually a pretty cool litmus test for seeing how many perspectives people can see. If you ask the question, what makes someone a V10 climber or a 530? Yeah like a 13a climber yeah. like and it's like when you start going down that rabbit hole because everyone has a different answer and the reason we need this is you know if i say hey i am a 514a climber so my stats should be tested against other 514a climbers blah 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 whatever um but it's for the sake of comparison so we need to figure out what is what makes you that number like for instance i haven't you know, I haven't climbed V12 in two years. Like, I just haven't climbed outside as much. Like, if we went, I think in research, it's, you know, what are the six climbs you've done and six different climbs you've done in the last six months? Uh, ooh, I'm, I don't know, like a V6 rock climber, maybe? Like, if we're only looking at outdoors? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the more you dig into these things, the more you see different people's perspectives. And this really highlighted it for me because some people were like, oh, well, what is it? You know, what have they sent three of in the last year? It's like, well, a lot of people have jobs and they live in the middle of nowhere and they go out climbing for, you know, a two week trip once a year and maybe a few long weekends. Like they don't have the opportunity to climb three high grades. Like they may be, you know, someone capable of climbing 14A, but it's going to take them two, three years because of the time that they have. 
Yep, exactly. You know, this was like a two-year discussion between us all. Oh, um, yeah. You know, it took a long time. And then every time somebody, like we'd bring someone else in, um, like when Dale first came in and was looking at these, you know, wanting to do something with the data, he's like, well, why not just this? And we're like, we've been down that road. Yeah. <laughs> you know? and that's, don't that's don't the even thing try. Yeah. And that's what's so fascinating about this is everyone has a very immediate, incredibly confident answer. Like, yeah, everyone's totally. like, I'm, they're like, guys, why don't you see this from my perspective? Like, it's clearly this. And what they say is, it is my perspective. It is my bubble that should be represented. And the second you start bringing them in, like, oh, well, I have 10 clients who are like this. So that can't apply. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're right. We can't do what is the hardest thing you've climbed on four different rock types because they only live, you know, sandstone's the only thing around for 15 hours in every direction. Yeah. Um, all these different things. And that's a really fun way of having that conversation around that question really shows you a lot of different people's perspectives. Yep. Totally. Cool. Was there anything else you had like noted from this episode you wanted to talk about? Uh, trying to see, you know, overall I thought it was just a really fun episode. Uh, yeah, same. I think, uh, the last thing I had was uh, mental work as an underhanded free throw. I think it's one of those things that there's not a person who won't agree that they could be, you know, have better self-talk, have just a better approach overall mentally to rock climbing. But it's one of those things like kind of alongside of uh, flexibility for 90% of us, those of us who aren't already mm -hmm. flexible. You know, those are honestly some low-hanging fruit that I think all of us avoid as is right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and I agree completely, but again, I would say, you know, don't just take that statement and say, okay, I need to get more flexible. I need to work on my mental game. You know, maybe you do, but what does it get you? I think is the question. Some people it's going to get them a lot. Some people it's going to get them very little. And in some cases getting very little might be what you need. So you really have to consider it, you know, if you know, looking at this episode, you know, a free throw is one point, whereas, uh, you know, a field goal from the floor is, is two points or three in some cases. So, you know, maybe Shaq not spending time working on his free throws or not spending more time working on his free throws and instead working on his dominance from the field was a smart play. You know, he gets more out of that. Uh, he mm -hmm. ends up sixth on the all-time all time scoring list, you know. So, yeah, you just consider. Sometimes you have to compromise, and, you know, maybe I'm not going to be as flexible because I don't have the time and I'm putting the time toward this. Or maybe, you know, maybe I can sacrifice a little bit of this time that I'm putting in to become a little more flexible and that extra 2% of flexibility is going to help me in a big way. You know, you really have to determine for yourself. Yeah. Something I, I, when I was looking at stats, one thing I thought was really interesting is if Wilt Chamberlain had not done the granny shots during his hundred point game and mm -hmm. he had, he had just hit his normal amount of free throws uh -huh. he still would have had the highest scoring game ever. 
Hmm. I thought would, that was an and interesting that was, stat. That would still hold? Yep, still hold. He would have 88 points if he had reverted to his normal free throw percentage, and only one other person, Kobe, has ever scored more than 80. Hmm. Yeah, but so, man, 100's way cooler. It is way cool. And, but that's, you know, that and, is a very interesting... Yeah, and if you watch the game, you know, the crowd got really behind the prospect of a 100-point game, and so did the team, so they were like, they made that the mission of the game. Yeah. You know, after about halftime, it was like, let's get Wilt to 100. Yeah. So, you know, it it is a very cool thing, but it was also a, somewhat of a an orchestrated thing. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. All right. We've been talking forever here, which is a good thing. We don't get to sit down and chat right now, so. Yeah. So I appreciate these conversations. And actually, I like the, like, let's pick a, a podcast episode or a book or a video or whatever and and get our, each get our own perspectives together and then and then discuss it, you know. And I think that could be a cool jumping off point for a lot of people and their discussions. So I urge, urge you to do that with your partners. You know, I've, I've heard of some people giving... Uh, the book, the hard truth to their partners and saying, read this and then let's have a discussion about it. And, you know, I think you can do that about podcast episodes, audio books, you know, whatever. And I think it's a, a great way to learn. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, these have been fun chats. Uh, yeah, I actually was just talking with a couple the other day and they were saying that uh, they've been reading the book together. They trade off reading like chapters out loud to each other and then they'll sit and talk about them afterwards and i that's a cool way to do it um i've you know i really enjoyed the book and i've gotten to chat with a few people about it and you know we all have different takeaways and hearing other people's takeaways i'm like oh i didn't get that but i should have Uh, yeah yeah it's it's such a cool thing and i've gotten a lot of feedback from this book you know just what people have gotten out of it and you know some people are like i already know these things you know, I don't need to know these anymore. And I'm like, man, I wish I could say that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But even when I was putting it together, I'm reminded of these lessons that I've learned once and forgotten and need to learn again, you know? So just such a cool, cool thing. And discussing it with people, you know, when I was putting it together and I was talking it over with Brittany, who was helping edit and design and, you know, just decide what goes in and what doesn't. Um, it, it was just so cool hearing her perspective. And now I get to hear it from everybody else too. So very cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Nice work on the book, man. I haven't had a chance to really uh, talk with you about it, but yeah, I yeah, think we it's, should, uh, awesome we should do tool. an episode talking about some of it sometime. I think that'd be fun. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And thank you. I, I appreciate it. Um, like I mentioned in the beginning, if you guys are Amazon people who get on Amazon and, you know, if you have an account and you hate Amazon, it does do some good things. It does get get the book in front of a lot of new faces who wouldn't see it otherwise. So, um, you know, if you would go on and leave a review of it, I would be hugely appreciative just to just to push, you know, the information out there and to get it in front of more faces i think that's 
massively important, especially in an age where there's just so much noise and it's hard to hard to wade through it all and figure out what to listen to. I, I'd like to think this book is a, a really common sense, you know, tough love approach to here's how you get better at climbing. So the more people that get to hear it, the better. Yeah. And uh, the Instagrams, you know where we're at on there. The Facebooks, at Power Company Climbing. The Facebook community group has exploded in the last, in the corona time. Yeah. You know, so many people have found it one way or another. And and there's some cool conversations that happen on there. So if you're on the Facebook, check us out, at Power Company Climbing, and search for the Power Company Climbing community. And if you're on the Instagram, at Power Company Climbing, uh, I've been up in the uh, YouTube game a little bit, so if you're on there, check that out as well. We and, also uh, have uh, Instagram gifts now. Ah, uh, we do. That's right. Yeah, Nate put together some gifts, and you should check those out and use them in your posts. And more of those will be coming down the pipeline. Um, super fun. I've used the banana about eight bazillion times now. Nice. I thought you'd um, like that one. Yeah, I've been using that one to death. Um, so check those out and share the book on Twitter share the videos on Twitter share it all on Twitter I won't see it but you can tell me next time you see me because we don't tweet we scream like eagles This time.